So tonight is the Asala Puja, and uh, one thing this means is the beginning or the day before we enter the it's called the Rains Retreat, and so this is a time when we particularly um, try to maintain more more stability and be more um, more meditation, more study, more I might say a little more kind of intense focus on the workings of the mind rather than the workings of the, the monastery. Though it's always a little bit diffused, being life being the way it is. <laughs> Things don't happen exactly on time. But of course the, uh, the real um, aim of the practice is to be able to synthesize the two so that what everyone is doing Externally, one's working internally as well. We, in fact, use our activities to purify the mind of its impatience or its um, introvertedness or its stubbornness or its impulsiveness. Just kind of working steadily with what we're doing, sense of lightness and care, attention, mindfulness. Um, not getting too caught up with ourselves. Um, so actually, you know, Working is fine, meditating is fine, studying is fine. It's all, matter, all a matter of finding the right tempo and the right balance where you always keep one, one eye, one sense very much focused on what's, what your mind is making, what it's getting driven into or what it's hardening up or taking a stand on. So a lot of this is really the fine, fine work of cultivation. This is lifetime practice, at least one lifetime probably several lifetimes of practice of working working out the way our minds work. But in the Vasa you can make determinations or particular re- resolves and resolutions. You know, particular things you feel you'd like to put aside or give up or things you'd like to pick up and make more of, more focus on. This is a good practice. It's up to one to consider what's... what's uh, What's beneficial? Yeah. So a few thoughts for myself. But I was looking in the um, in the shrine room today, and there's a little sign there, which is probably a good re- resolution for all of us, because it's right on the shrine. It says, uh, uh, "Please make sure that lit candles and flames you don't leave them unattended." And when you refer this to the internal aspects of our lives, our minds, it's a good idea to keep your eye on the on that the light there doesn't turn into fire. Or if it turns into fire it doesn't it doesn't topple over and burn burn things up. So you have this uh, mind that can be extremely radiant and bright and uh, and very beautiful. Um, 
but it can also turn over into fire. Uh, catches fire. And sometimes one doesn't really recognize it's something you don't want to play with, or you've got to be very careful how you handle it. So, because we get lit up and fired up about particular things you want to do, or the way people are, or even good standards of practice, or <clears throat> ourselves and others. And uh, the good ideas can tip over. We find ourselves feeling frustrated or resentful or just overdoing it, you know, burning out. <clears throat> Quite common. You know. So you kind of learn, really, from the little fires that go on <clears throat> and uh, recognizing how one got a bit scorched there. <laughs> And when it comes down to it, with all the goodwill and the good teachings in the world, it's it's the sort of thing one has to find out for oneself through one's own karma. And, uh, so I know just myself noticing, you know, one always has good aspirations, and yet, and yet, you know. So being someone who's quite uh, by tendency quite willful and stubborn, then really it takes a lot of years and a lot of being bashed around to actually. Uh, start to get more clear about uh, letting go. You know, because a lot of the willfulness and the tenacity can is is aimed towards the good. You know, towards uh, you know brighter or stronger or more whatever. You know, good ideas, and yet there can be this kind of holding on to it that brings up a sense of frustration or irritation or ill will. And then you think, hey, what's happening here? You know, getting uptight about standards in the monastery, about other people, or about myself, or getting rigid. This doesn't feel right. So how do we handle this? And uh, it's kind of trial and error, really. Because you can't just start out all cool and non-attached. You know... <laughs> Actually, nice, isn't it? You've got to work with it and start to see where you know the suffering and the stress and the conflicts are being generated. And it's not easy because because uh, quite often it seems like it's it's not oneself, it's other people or, or situations that, that are doing that. And there's plenty, plenty in a monastic community, plenty of raw material for fire. Start, we, have, we live in re- restraint. So fundamentally the principle of restraint is you can't have what you want when you want it. And that's pretty inflammable, isn't it? <laughs> Restart. And then you can't do what you want when you want it. Not only you can't have what you want, but you can't do what you want when you want it. I mean, it may so happen that what's happening is what you feel really good about, but you'd reckon you've got this sense of it certainly could be checked, you know. Maybe you can't. Some rule, some piece of protocol, something doesn't happen, you want to get something done, and actually there isn't the funds for it, or some piece of protocol you go through and you get feeling frustrated, you know. Or other people are not doing what one feels they should do to maintain a good sense of 
good standards, you feel frustrated with that. So we can't have what we want when we want it. We can't do what we want when we want it. And some things, things that we don't want to have happen, happen. You know, kind of an open system, really, where you know, at the first start, we're all in an open system. We can get sick when you don't want it. Or you're just about to sell into retreat and then your dad has a heart attack or something. You've got to rush off and look after him. Didn't want that. Yeah. People leaving, you don't want them to leave, you don't want them to disrobe. You would do it anyway. <laughs> and so on and so on. Yeah. So, you know, it's a setup that, that more or less. And then living in this particular form of, of discipline, then there's kind of a hierarchy and have to follow on, which again is a source of, you know. So it's amazing, really, the, the, the incredible um, aspiration and, and integrity of people living in these communities that actually is pretty good, you know. A little flame bursts out here and there, but, you know, it's pretty good. Because of the power of, of insight and meditation and calm and friendliness and mutual respect, that, that is a standard for what we try to encourage. You know, and you really see it when you recognize how difficult it can be for oneself, and you realize it's difficult for everyone. You know, you start to get the sense of camaraderie. As a real one of the real uh, uh, struggles for human beings is when they feel the self, sense of self and other. And when we get a sense of communality, we're all in a, you know, all in a in this potentially inflammable situation, and we're working with it. And by, by and large, we're managing pretty good. You know, well, when people do blow up, we think, well, yeah, what do you expect? Um, you get a feeling of of sympathy and empathy, and this is really very very basic and important in Buddhist cultivation to others as to myself, sharing morality to others. I don't do to others what I don't want them to do to me. I don't abuse others because I don't want to be abused myself. I don't verbally do that to others. I don't want to do that to myself. If they do verbally abuse me, then I can, what I can do is not verbally abuse them back. Yeah. So Because you, have some, you want to have some say over your own karma. And, of course, the real testing thing is when one is in situations which you have every right to feel fed up with, irritated by, annoyed by, but what you do recognize is if you're going to let the world do this to you, you know, if you're going to let other people do this to you, make you lose your say of your own mind, if you're going to let conditions have say over you, then you're really kind of throwing in the towel, really, in terms of Dhamma practices. Here we get authority where we can really establish it. So what other people say or do, you have some sense of, well, I've got the chance to at least, I'm not going to kind of go into reactivity around that. So is that famous... <coughs> Parable, the Buddha says, you know, if bandits catch you and saw your limbs off with a two-handled saw, and if you experience any sense of ill will towards them, then you're not really a true disciple. (laughs) 
And you think, well, if somebody saws your limbs off, you'd have every right to feel a little bit peeved and put in a complaint. <laughs> and indeed you would. This is not suitable behaviour. But I think if you're being held by four bandits who are sawing you up, it's not really a time to start giving sermons. But, <laughs> but to recognise what I can do is at least not go into that state really, and really I think when you, you when you are in pain you just get to whoever's causing whatever's causing you get to the point of pain is pain and you take the self out of it you get, it's a lot easier to handle rather than he's inflicting it she's inflicting it just the sense of pain mm. you know, what, can, what do I do at that point what, what do, I, do I have some say over what happens there at that point? This is what you really want to get on top of. That's where you, the fire doesn't take over. And then the sense of the, the justifiable inflammations of aversion or fear or resentment, which is certainly in some ways justified, become transmuted into this brilliance of awakening. Brilliant and bounded mind, mind isn't caught on reactivity. So this is the kind of, you know, the, the, the crucible of Dharma practice is when we turn suffering into enlightenment. And uh, this particular sort of direct or kamatana, working on karma, working on action, working on reaction, Kamatana traditions. This is a kind of a central practice point. <clears throat> and depending where you are, you know, how you work with that. But certainly the old old school, the old style, they have this thing called Toraman, which meant basically people just get tortured. <laughs> Various kinds of psychological or things like this. So, for example, long sittings can be frustrating. You know. Long talks can be frustrating. Being fed up. Uh, but yet the sense of the determination is you stay with that and you work with that energy and you start to release, you know, let go into that. As I remember this... Uh, there's a lot of the teaching is really about that. It's not tremendously intellectual. It's just about bearing patient endurance at that particular point. And it seems to, you know, it, work, it can work in some situations. Certainly in, in the old old school in Thailand, that's very much the standard. Imagine Jun, the story of Ajahn Jun, who's his monastery. Ajahn Jun was one of Ajahn Chah's probably, uh, I think, one of his most senior disciples. He was a very jolly and, and lovable man. And I think that's probably why he could get away with it, because he was so kind of hearty and, and so warm to him so immediately. He's such a kind of warm-hearted being. But he'd do this have on the one prayer night, the night of the all-night sittings. They'd have, a, in the monastery, they'd only have one hot drink a, a week. And this would be on the one prana night. So see the one night where there'd be a hot, sweet drink. The rest of the time you just drank uh, 
rainwater or well water. So naturally there'd be a little bit of interest in this one hot drink of the week. And then so they'd have the the evening sitting and then they'd do then they then some neighbors would bring the big kettles in of this hot drink and they'd put it down and we kind of focus on that kettles on the kettles. And then they do the chanting. Do the chanting, they sit for a while and at the end of the sitting we look at those kettles. And then the, and then they get up and give a talk, start giving a talk. Talk going for a half an hour, people sort of getting a bit frisky looking at the kettle an hour. When that kettle, you know, two hours, you know, tea. And then he'd make out like he didn't notice. <laughs> and after about two and a half hours of this talk, he'd go, oh, look, somebody's brought some tea. Why don't we all have some tea? Wouldn't we like some tea? <laughs> so, so, you know, there's Kitty Sara who says, do you want to kill him? You know, for a cup of tea, you want to kill this guy? Yeah, I could understand that. <laughs> and yet, really, what cup of tea, big deal. But it's a big deal, but it's only once a fortnight. And when you feel somebody actually is, is deliberately stopping you getting it. Yeah. So the perception, isn't it? Actually, tea is what? Drinking hot tea, so what? But actually, the perception of it's there, offered for you, it's nice, it's your one break of a week, and this guy's stopping you getting it. That is, that is justification for homicide. <laughs> so you're always going to come, come back through these, the world of perception. You know, he's doing it, he's winding me up, she's getting on my case, he's deliberate being this, that and the other. Maybe so, maybe so. But, yeah, what comes out? What do you want to do about that? What's workable with that? And sense, sense objects. I remember the first, uh, time when I first arrived in England, then um, I went to stay in, in Oakenholt, and I determined that I would never ever ask for anything. I'd come from a monastery, monastic situation where you're expected, they'd give you money, you're expected to buy things. That's just kind of standard in, in uh, monasticism. No, it came to, so it came to a situation where all that was stopped. And I thought, right, that's it. I don't want to ask for anything. Just whatever, you know. Make a clear determination. So if the tea's offered, fine. If it's not, fine. You know, just... Just really work on that. And in the winter time, it, they, uh, it snowed a lot, and we we used to go on the arms round, even though there was no arms to collect, just as a sense of keeping the thing going. And um, I only had this lightweight pair of sandals that my mother had got for me when I got back from Thailand. But then it, it was thick snow going on arms round, and. The place where we were staying out in the country, the, the people brought, brought some of these thermal insulated rubber boots. But they didn't, they brought some for uh, Ajahn Sumato, and I think one or two of the monks, even one of the Summoneras, but they didn't bring any for me. Uh, I don't, I think perhaps because they, you know, I was a new, new to the group or something, 
Anyway, whatever. So they had boots. I didn't have boots. You know, so, and, you know, so, okay, so I'm going out arms around in the snow. I've got no boots. And it's like 18 inches of snow, open-toed sandals, a three-mile walk. And uh, it's quite, you know, look at that. So you can think of, like, how come I didn't get any boots? Lay people stupid. Favoritism. But you realize, actually, it's funny how, you think of it, actually, these people, acts of generosity could become a source of ill will. I mean, if I hadn't given the other monks any boots, I wouldn't have felt annoyed about it. (laughs) So how come their act of generosity towards some beings gets translated into ill will? You know, not fair. Actually, there's nothing fair about it in the first place. It wasn't, they didn't have to give any boots to anybody. You could see, if they hadn't given them any boots, I wouldn't have felt let down. And yet, with the same result, I'm still walking through the snow. You see how the perception, and then walking through the snow, actually, feet are freezing cold, but, you know, keep going, get back, put in some warm water, come out of it. It's not the end of the world. And just doing that. This is, it's better to have just accept what's offered, and if it isn't offered, it isn't needed. Then you cut through all that stuff about what I should have, and why people should treat me, just get down to the nitty-gritty of dealing with physical feeling. There's something you want to do something about. You know, focusing on it, seeing it, it's not global, it's not the end of the world, it's not, and it passes. And, you know, you really come through these little pieces of the way one constructs one's world around self and others and rights and wrongs and so on, comparing. Yeah. So, you know, with this you start to this kind of situation and training, mendicancy and community. You know, we're living on what's offered and sometimes, you know, we don't get what's offered or somebody gets what's offered and I don't get what's offered or she gets more than I do or whatever, you know. Or they give us tons of this and you're thinking, goodness me, how come we've got 14 gallons of washing up liquid and yet... <laughs> What we really need is some. <laughs> you see, yeah, you find yourself feeling irritated about people's generosity. Yeah. So, how the sense of that, where where we need to bring our attention, the, realizing as long as one creates the world in one's mind, we miss the point. Creating the world is pretty much what the mind does. It's nobody's fault. It's not a particular personal idiosyncrasy. All of us create a world. That's what minds do. That's what it's supposed to do. The past, future, self, other. It does all that. 
And then within that, could be, should be, might be, nice if it was, look out for the future, does all that. That's what minds are supposed to do. And yet right there is suffering, if you hang on to it. And yet the mind doesn't go anywhere else, it goes around there. So, well, the conventional mind. So our aim, in a way, is when you get to the end of the world, end of suffering, end of the world, you get to the end of the mind, or you get to the end of the conditioned mind. Find out, get behind that. It's quite a journey through perceptions and feelings and assumptions and right and wrong and so on. It's a journey to get to the end of that. This is really, and then this practice is such, and the kind of whole container of it is to really encourage and keep, you know, get us going there. In a way, you don't want to have it so everything's going one's own way because you won't go there. I'm not going to, you know, if I don't have something in the mind doesn't want to go there. If I can get what I want and everything's going to work for me, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> so it has to be the sense of something like tapas, it's called a certain heating up, a certain, you know, restriction, restraint, you know, to keep, and then, but really to find out in, in this situation, my, my encouragement is to really use the basic stuff and to each individual to find out for themselves what they want to really, you know, angle in on. So you take responsibility for that. But for as a general encouragement, recognize there are certain areas where we get, which you look at, and these are the area of sense, sense objects, which give us pleasure and displeasure, the sense of uh, becoming or identity, what we seem to be and what others seem to be, you know, the area of views, which and these are all things that are bound up with the way the mind operates and the way it's supposed to operate. You know, it's, that's that's the system that we get. That's what we inherit. We can't ignore that experience and yet we want to see through that so clearly with sense objects they're fragile they're impermanent they're changing they're also attractive and we can squabble over them so this is the kind of first level you start to see is this really worth getting fired up about and uh, by and large people in these situations have enough Thorough me enough wisdom, enough sense to recognize this isn't really what I'm here for. It doesn't matter. You know, we can get past that. What's probably uh, gets more difficult for all of us is becoming the being sense, what I am, what I will be, how I'm regarded by others. All this sense where our, our, what, what we are continually experiencing ourselves as being something. And yet what we're being is always changing. We, so we, we, infer or look towards a permanent sense of what I am and yet what I am is actually always in a process of not being quite finished uh, bits, of, bits are passing away there's bits we haven't completed yet we're in some sort of process it's moving on it's doing that isn't it yeah. one's always about to be something else 
One's always moving out of having been something else. Mm. Moving out of being in one situation to being in another situation. When you look at it very finely, it's happening from moment to moment, coming out of being ill into being healthy, coming out of being tired into being wakeful, coming out of being wakeful into being sleepy, coming out of being inspired to becoming kind of indifferent, you know? And it's always on that roll. And uh, we would like to be in the sense of the good psychological state, you know, that's where we want to be. And, uh, you know, and then because we're affected by what's going on around us, also that we need some kind of sense of affirmation in that. So people start saying, you're an idiot, you don't count, who cares what you think anyway? One's likely to get a bit aggrieved at that. You want to be... So this sense of being something always... It's not only changing, but it's also dependent. It's dependent upon what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our energies, what's happening in our emotions, what's happening in the world around us, how we are gradually coming into form, feeling I am being you know, neglected, or I'm being praised, or I'm being blamed. And it's always this kind of moving on. And it's shifting all the time. But because it's so dependent, because it's dependently arisen, we can think, the problem is my body's tired, that's it. If it wasn't for that, I'd be okay. Problem is, you know, uh, my mind is in, you know, whatever it is, sleepy. If it wasn't for this, I'd be okay. So because we take that sense of becoming depends upon particularly... uh, Experiences that are happening that are not under our control. And of course, then we externally, I'd be okay if it wasn't for this setup. I'd be okay if it wasn't for her or them or him. If it wasn't for, you know, or this rule or this training or something, then I'd be okay. So a sense of becoming is, is being shaped by these forces around us. I mean, if we could just kind of get rid of the irritating one, then we'd be okay. I'd become steady, calm, peaceful, whatever, you know. And to a certain extent, this is what people are doing all the time, shifting the world around till we get into the right set of forces and energies and people and situations to feel comfortable. And... It's so powerful that, uh, you know, when, when we take on monastic training, there is an agreement, you know, of um, what we will find our pleasure and comfort in. In uh, morality, mutual respect, in kindness, generosity, doing things clearly above board, nobody doing deals behind the back. You know, so there's a sense of trust. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the standard, you know. We're here, this is one of the few situations where we recite all our bylaws every two weeks. You go through the whole protocol, well, at least the essence of it, every couple of weeks, and you kind of look at bits and pieces of, wait a minute, how's this fit? And you try and talk it out. You know, so that nothing, no other organization does that, I'm sure, every two weeks, to try to get into a situation where you feel that what you're in fundamentally is trustworthy and, and you all can have your say in it. But still within that, 
you know. It's not paradise. It's not blissful. So what we, we, over time, what you need to recognize is whatever situation one's in always has got this quality to it because it's in the world of becoming. Anything in the world of becoming is like this. It's shifting, it's changing, and it's going from being agreeable to disagreeable to neutral. What I want, what I don't want, it's always doing that. Anything, any of it. And yet, we try to bring, we try to make become not just a a superficial reaction to conditions, to becoming, to phenomena, to circumstances, to people, but actually use that situation of, of this difficult realm of becoming to generate things like goodwill, relinquishment, Kindness, compassion, truthfulness, honesty, mindfulness. Yeah. So you use it in order that not that you become something, but the skillful mind states, the skillful strategies arise out of handling this situation. So there is a kind of becoming that is recommended. It's the becoming of enlightenment factors. And it arises through a correct relationship to the world of circumstance and situations. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, the axis, that's the nub, that's where it turns, isn't it? We can either just react to, attach to, fixate upon, or we can recognize what's happening and what is the skillful response to that. Mm-hmm. Wake it up. wake up that bit that's been sleeping. You know, get the nerve that's gone numb for recognizing it's because of this that we will be stuck in this realm of becoming time and time again until we get this one wake to wake up. So like that, you know, sometimes you think, look, really give it a good bash, will you? Massage it, get it awake, I want to get out of here. <laughs> you know, that's that's the the tapas quality. And you have these various fire breaks, you might say. And one is a sense of, you know, as one meets this, this uh, enters the struggle of, ha- of being in this world of becoming with its changes and its disappointments and its whatever, frustrations. And, you know, suddenly it seems to go really well. And we think, oh, great, great, great. And then crunch, you know, it's, uh, or somebody doesn't agree with it. Is to use it to, you know, it's fall to fall back to come back to, 
generating those skillful mind states, skillful responses. So your first first fallback is is say sila or morality, like, even though it's annoying or disappointing. I'm not going to break precept around it. Didn't get any. Didn't get offered any arms food today. But I'm not going to eat in the evening. You know things of this nature. I'm bored, but I'm not going to go out and watch a movie. Yeah. Angry, but I'm not going to you know, rip the chanting books up or something like that. <laughs> so you get the, the, the sense of the, the sealer as a, as a fallback, something that holds it there. And then really very much interesting to work with a sense of self and others. I would say that one of the crucial Feelings of, of suffering, when it's, of dire suffering, or is it's being done to me, and in that one feels left out, alone. You know, somehow shut off. You know, it's, you feel closed in. You feel personally overwhelmed, or done in, or dumped on, or disregarded, or you know, whatever it is. And so that everybody else is okay. Or he's okay. He's getting a good time. I'm getting a bad deal. And it's certainly in monasteries, this is, in this particular system, this is uh, pretty easy to find because we do have systems of, you know, hierarchy and then the senior people get more of this, you know, more attention, more praise, more focus more, you know, first in line and this kind of stuff. So you can definitely feel other, self and other. And it's the this with, with, uh, with Ajahn Sumato, who's, who's always felt pretty fond of in many ways, you know, but yet, it was fine. You know, he'd come in and he'd say something. Everybody immediately rush and do it the way he wanted it. Like, I want to, you know, he'd come in and, no, I want the tea put in this room. Suddenly, everybody jump up and take the tea out and put it somewhere else. Or, or he'd be, you're just about, or in the mornings, you're just about to be eat, drink your tea, and he'd, over breakfast, he'd start to give a talk, and you have to put your tea down, listen to the talk. And part of your mind's looking at that tea, thinking it's getting cold. It's cold. It's a cold day, there's some hot tea there, and hot porridge, and it's getting cold because we're waiting for you to finish the talk. Why can't he, why can't he wait till we finished? <laughs> you know, this, this kind of thing. Why does everything have to operate around him? I think probably over over the years we've felt it's more probably not a bad idea to start to soften some of that <laughs> that angularity of the hierarchy because it's just uh, is this really useful? But certainly once you you find yourself in a, in that position, even for a day, or you're thinking, my goodness, uh, you know, it's uh, not a very pleasant position to be in. 
You, know, you can look like you're getting all the things, but also you feel the weight of it and the pressure of it and the spotlight of it and the, you know, you know, the sense of having to get it right all the time, trying to make it work. Thinking, you know, I, you can have flowers on your trade, it's fine. <laughs> so the sense of self and other, and you just realize the most important thing is to realize what you're working on yourself. There's this story of the, uh, uh, read of the Tibetan monk, Paldun Gatso, who was uh, who, who was thirty years in a jail in Tibet, uh, and what he'd done was he he wouldn't denounce his teacher. The Chinese communist guard, when they took over Tibet, said your teacher is a, a member of the CIA, you know. And he said, no, he's not. Says so yes, he is. Confess, but he said, but but he's not. I can't say he is because he isn't. So they didn't. They beat him up. And so he said, well, but it's, I can't say it's true because it isn't true. How can I say something true that's true that isn't true? So they beat him up again. They threw him in jail, and he was in jail for 30 years. During that time, beaten up, starved, tortured, humiliated. He escaped once, got captured, so they beat him up again, threw him back in jail. So during this time, you know, things like putting electric cattle prods in the mouth, so you'll repeat electric shock in your mouth the teeth fall out um, seeing other people executed beaten up, tortured for 30 odd years and eventually he was something like in his 60s and he said look you know I'm an old man could I just go home and die in peace so, you know so eventually they let him out decided he was no threat and he escaped and he managed to take some of these torture equipment he wanted to bring it out as evidence and he escaped from Tibet and he went first thing he did he went to see the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala and he so so he went to see his holiness the Dalai Lama and he said oh the only thing I'm worried about he said I wonder if for any time in that 30 years I might have lost my sense of compassion for the Chinese guards whether any thought of ill will might have risen in my mind. And that was his that was his concern. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a standard, isn't it? But when you uh, consider that, and you you know how inspiring and how wonderful that possibility is to have that sense of you know realizing the thing that you perhaps the only thing that you may have mastery over is what rises out of your mind, and that self and others doesn't really come into it. It's beneath that, or it's beyond self and others. It's not about them or me. It's just about, you know, meeting the experience of pain, humiliation, frustration, sorrow, grief, betrayal, whatever. Meeting it, releasing the resentment, the ill will, the despair. And that this can be done.
No, it's it's uh, you know the interesting thing is that that even without such brutal treatment, my experience in in these situations that people can get to some pretty pretty bleak spaces without having been tortured for thirty years, beaten up, and still get to these states of extreme despair and uh, and resentment and difficult states. It does show you something about the mind, doesn't it? And for sure, for each and every one of us in those states, we can add up, line up the dots that just make that true and real and they, he shouldn't and they shouldn't and it's you know and I did this to me and they didn't do that and wow you know and it's one way it's true that's the world of becoming self others and when the mind goes out into that self and others state you realize it's it's not going to penetrate it's not going to release. Mm. That's why in, in monastic communities, it's just be careful about uh, even, you know, how we form friendships. It's not we are we are, have a quality of friendliness without necessarily forming, you know, buddies here and there because you do that and then. You know, you start to establish a place for losing the plot, for missing it. We are feeling a sense of definite uh, congratulation and praise for skillful mind states for when that arises. This is something to develop. When you see the good actions of others, when you see the good words of others, when you notice the skillful silences of others, you think, Sadhu, praise, this is beautiful. But don't make a person out of it. You know, if we start developing self, we develop others who aren't as good or should be another way. And then it goes, you know. But definitely uplift and value and honor the good and feel a sense of concern over the unskillful. But realize you don't, within the realm of self and others, you don't really know others. You can't really say. You can say how it seems and how it's affecting you, but nobody knows anybody else. We know how we're affected, but we don't even know ourselves, really. We certainly can't know anybody else. So it becomes something to be careful about. You begin to... So, you know, in the Buddha Dharma, even when people make strong transgressions, the training is the person is asked, do you see this? Do you see this? If they don't, okay, then you say, but what about this and this and this? Do you see this? They don't. They have to actually see it themselves. You can't judge others. You can ask them to judge themselves, to be honest about themselves. You can't actually impose on others in that way. 
And you see that the really it's always trying to reach the integrity in each and every one of us. Come out of self and others. Look at mind states. Get a person, get each of us to recognize our mind states. Could, we, could any of us say we have never had an unskillful mind state? No. Can we say that today there's been no unskillful mind states? You know? <laughs> so, you know, who's, got, who's judging who? We have enough to really keep in touch with our own candles, with our own little fires. And uh, when one does, I think when we do recognize, when we get, come to the point of our own experience, we say, well, you know, when you consider the, the limitations, the, 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 the austerities, the pressures that are on people to do and focus and get things done and to put aside, to relinquish and to bear with, I am indeed privileged to live with such people you know, who are not, you know, blowing up. You know, occasionally a little, but I'm indeed privileged. It is an inspiration and a great blessing. That may I emulate or be be guided by the standards that I see being people are trying to to reach around me. So one can feel this sense of of uh, inspiration from the world, rather than the the frustration with it. Recognizing to live here requires a continual, ongoing response to dukkha. And wonderful, congratulations. May it carry you through to the final goal. As long as the mind orients around self, becoming, others, sensuality, it will always orient around suffering. The only orientation the mind can make, the one that we're left with, the unnameable, the unconditioned. You know, this is a tall order. So if we at least start orienting around morality and kindness and sharing, then we're going in the right direction towards that deconditioning of the mind's reactivity, bonding, attachment to what can do us no good. So, let's focus on these themes and uh, for our practice, common themes, things we know, we just need to get clearer, clearer and stronger and more com- confidence in because the mind does, is in this realm where it can easily get drawn out. Don't let the candles fall over. <laughs>